0: you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to Psalm 130. The title of the sermon this morning is Freedom from Guilt. But before we read the text or go any further, would you pray with me? Father, as we've already prayed, we ask that our hearts would be rendered transparent before you. We ask God that through your word you would speak to us and we trust God that through your word you long to speak to us and reveal yourself to us. And we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and minds to comprehend and hearts to love your word. Now, Lord, I pray That the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I approached the text this week and even the time of preparation, I wasn't quite sure where, what psalm I should preach from. As our psalm summer series for Psalms ends or winds down, I wasn't sure which one to go to. And and, uh, and, and so we haven't looked at a Psalm of Lament in quite a while uh, during this study. And so this morning I want us to spend some time uh, walking through one of the Psalms of Lamentation or Lamenting. It is a, a penitential psalm, a psalm of prayer. And this particularly fit with me this week because. Even though I'm coming off a of vacation last week and had a refreshing and relaxing week, this week has been particularly heavy. I attended a couple of funerals, and when we walk through loss, th- that's always something that's heavy, and it, uh, it it does something internally for us, where we uh, we're, we're more sensitive to uh, to. To, to life and to the things that uh, that God is doing in our lives and even the time that we have left on earth but even more than that it, it was particularly heavy because of uh, the media and, and what came out last week with with Ashley Madison and then uh, this week the continuing revelation and data dumps and all of this that that came out um, and even reading through and seeing the names of individuals that I knew on the list this was Particularly heavy, and it was it grieved me, grieved my heart. And, and it caused me to think about sin and the guilt that we incur because of our sin and the struggle that we have, even deep down in, in dark places. And one of the prevailing thoughts that came to my mind as I as I read through this list and saw people's names, I thought, God, I don't want my name on a list for people to know the secret sins of my heart. And the reality is that all of us have sins that we harbor within our lives that we do not want others to know about. And with the weight of that sin comes great guilt and shame. And when we have guilt and shame, it causes us to do something. It causes us to isolate ourselves from the body of Christ, from brothers and sisters in Christ. And ultimately, sin will lead us down a path that is reckless, that is hurtful, that is harmful, that even can end in death so this morning, as we look at this psalm of lamentation, I, I think what we see is we see the psalmist struggling with deep anguish over guilt, over sin in his own life. And this morning, I, I want us to hear his prayer and see his activity before God because it's important for us to hear it and to see it. This morning, I want us ultimately to see That Christ, our Redeemer, frees us from bondage to guilt. This bondage to guilt that comes from the iniquity of sin and it it drives us to the depths of despair. There is freedom in Christ. So if you hear me say nothing else this morning, if you zone out, hear this. There is freedom in Christ from the guilt of sin. So, as we look this morning at Psalm 130, I want you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This morning I want to give us four exhortations for dealing with guilt that I think we see come straight out of this passage. The first one In verses 1 and 2, as we see the psalmist crying out to God, calling to God for deliverance. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. The metaphor for depths conveys the psalmist's feeling of alienation from God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at that point where you felt felt like you were alienated from God? As, As Tara's grandmother Mary has said before, she says, I feel like my prayers need to be swept off the ceiling because they don't ascend any higher. Have you ever felt like you were alienated from God? I think that's the sentiment of the psalmist here. He's experiencing inner anguish of his soul through the stormy chaos of life. Out of the depths, he says, I cry to you, O Lord. Now We don't ultimately know the circumstances surrounding the psalmist and his, uh, his plummeting into the depths. But what we do know is that, that he was in the depths of iniquity. We see that from verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, right? He was struggling with iniquity and with his own sin, and he was wrestling with this internally. One commentator said to the godly, sin, guilt, and God's fatherly discipline are like being cast into the depths of the sea. This language of being in the depths is used throughout all of Scripture. In Psalm 69, 1 through 3, King David cried out before the Lord, saying, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. You see, the depths are a metaphor for the travails of life. Trials and troubles and afflictions come upon us from external sources through the death of loved ones, wayward children, through the loss of job, through the loss of finances in the marketplace, untimely diagnoses of illnesses, unexpected fiery arrows from enemies, persecution. The list could go on and on of external circumstances that affect us. But hear this, they also come upon us from, from internal iniquity. The iniquity of our own sinful hearts. This is what we looked at even this morning in our Bible study hour before the service here. And this is the focus of the psalmist's prayer in verse 3. This iniquity that he speaks about. But notice, notice who the psalmist cries out to in verse 1. He cries out to the Lord. Do you notice anything different about the word Lord here in verse 1? It's in all caps, right? In verse 2, it's not. Verse 2, it's big L, capital L, lowercase, O-R-D. But here in verse 1, it's in in all caps. And it's significant because this tells us this is the covenant name of Yahweh, of God, of, of, of Israel. And he's known for his faithfulness. And so the psalmist is crying out to the faithful Lord of the covenant. And we can almost feel his urgency in crying out to God in this passage he cries out in verse 2 to Lord, O oh Lord, hear my voice. But this time, he uses the word for Lord that's Adonai. And it's significant of the master-slave relationship or the master-servant relationship. And this title invokes that the Lord is master over the psalmist. And he's saying, Master, let your ear be attentive to the voice of my prayer. The word mercy isn't actually in the Hebrew text, but it's the the impetus behind what he's saying. Reason is because as the servant, you're the master, I'm the slave. I deserve nothing from you. But hear me. Extend to me your mercy in the depth of my anguish. Hear my prayer. Turn your ears to me with favor, and hear what I'm asking of you. I've been brought low, and I need you to hear me. This was King Solomon's prayer in dedicating the temple in Second Chronicles six, verse forty. He says, "Now, oh my God, let your ears be open and your your eyes be open, and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place." It was the prayer of the great reformer Nehemiah, when he was seeking to walk obediently, following God's way. He was going before the king and about to request this great request to be able to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. And he says he prays, "O Lord, again this word for Lord in, in Nehemiah 1:11, it's Adonai. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant." And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. then he says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. You see, he's calling out, the psalmist here is calling out to God, saying, unless you intervene, there's no hope. I'm ruined. And I want to submit to you this morning, this is the picture of complete dependence and utter trust upon God. God. And I want to ask us this morning, brothers and sisters, where do you turn when you're in the depths? Do you begin to rationalize and justify your guilt by looking at other people? Do you seek to make yourself feel better by setting the standard even lower? Do you surrender to the pain and sink into depression or despair? Or do you seek to, to medicate the pain through alcohol or through some addiction? Or do you do as the psalmist and you turn to God? You see, our response ought to be to turn to the Lord. For it's in our afflictions, in our trials, and in our troubles that we experience the power and the nearness of God as He stands ready to help us in our greatest need. Hear the promise of Hebrews four fourteen and 15. Are 15 and 16, speaking of Christ as our high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen, let us then are therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need see, the psalmist cries out to God because he knows God is faithful. And he knows God is the only one who can truly deliver him from the depths. So he calls out to God for deliverance. We're exhorted this morning, brothers and sisters, to call out to God, to cry out to God. In the midst of our guilt, in the midst of our shame, cry out to God for deliverance. Don't forget this. But secondly, this morning, we're exhorted to remember that God is faithful to forgive. And we see this in verses 3 and 4. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You see, because God is his master, and he knows God gives ear to his servants, cry of dependence, he knows that his cry before God is not in vain. This is an affirmation of forgiveness that trusts upon the mercies of God. In verse 3, he tells him, if you keep record of iniquities, who could stand before you? He's confessing that he's sinful and full of iniquity when he goes before God. And in verse 4, he says, "But, but with God, with you, there is forgiveness. This word forgiveness, it's the word for pardon. And to be pardoned is to have one's guilt removed. It's to be forgiven. And the psalmist knows that forgiveness is near to the heart of God. You know, this tells us something about God's benevolent nature in dealing with his wayward children, dealing with us. And I think there are two options here as we look at verse 3 If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? right the first option is god notes every sin and holds us accountable in judgment god notes every sin and holds us accountable in judgment in one sense hear me out in one sense this is true there's a sin record which reveals our guilt before holy god and when where the ratio of our debt exponentially outweighs any credit that we might hope to have with God. And it thereby secures our guilt and our condemnation, for we're, des- we're deserving of God's judgment at the hands of God's justice. In Psalm 14, 2 and 3, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand who seek after God they have all turned aside together they've become corrupt there is none who does good not even one the apostle paul quotes this in romans chapter 3 verse 10 and in romans 323 he levels that charge against every one of us saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us. So one option is that God notes every sin and holds us accountable in judgment. There's a second option the psalmist is putting forth here. And the second option is that God, knowing our sin, will accept responsibility for it and forgive us. He says in verse 4, But with you there is forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, here's the hope of the gospel. While we're in the depths in our guilt before us, before God, we cry out to God and he hears us and he comes to us not with judgment, but he comes to us with forgiveness. And we know this supremely in the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ himself has died so that we might have salvation. This is what Paul speaks of in Colossians 2, 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him who? With Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Listen, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, right? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, God in Christ forgives our iniquities, taking away our guilt and condemnation, and he gives us of his righteousness. So we see this in the second part of verse 4. Why does he do this? The reason is that he might be feared. Because you see, in pardoning our iniquities. God aims to do something. God aims to arouse gratitude upon the hearts of his people that would lead us to commit ourselves in obedience to walk with him. You see, reverence for God is key to living a transformed life in relationship to God. And so Romans 2.4, Paul speaks of this and says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, here's the thing. God hasn't changed. And the psalmist knew He knew this about God long before Christ came as fulfillment of God's covenant with his people. Because in Christ, God has provided the way for us to be pardoned from sin. And this is good news. There was a little boy that was visiting his grandparents. And he had received his first, he had gotten his first slingshot. So he, he went out into the woods in order to practice with the slingshot. And he took stones with him and he shot at all kind of birds and he couldn't hit a bird. He shot at squirrels and he couldn't hit a squirrel. And he had one stone left. And as he's coming back into his grandma's yard, leaving the woods, he sees the pet duck. And so he grabs one stone, he puts it in the pouch of the sling, he pulls back and he aims and he lets it go. And to his amazement, he hits the duck. And he kills the duck. It falls over dead. He desperately starts looking around, and he sees his little sister Sally watching everything. He grabs the duck, runs, and moves wood off the wood pile, and he stuffs the duck in the wood pile and covers the duck with the wood. And his sister didn't say anything. And after lunch that day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash the dishes together. But Sally said, you know, Johnny told me that he wanted to help with with, uh, chores in the kitchen today. And she kind of elbowed him and said, Remember the duck? And he said, Yeah, yeah. I said, I'll help with the dishes. And then she whispered to him again, Now don't forget about the duck. And so Johnny did the dishes. Then later, Grandpa came in and he asked the kids if, if they would go and uh, go fishing, if they wanted to go fishing with him. And they said, Yes. And then Grandma said, Well, Sally, I need you to stay and help me cook supper. And so she elbows Johnny and said, but Johnny said he wanted to help with cooking supper. And Johnny looks down and said, yes, I, I want to help with cooking supper. Johnny stayed while Sally went fishing, Morning, not being able to go fishing with his grandpa. And after several days of Johnny doing both his and Sally's chores, he finally got tired of it and he fessed up to his grandma. He said, grandma, I killed the duck. And she said, I know, Johnny. She gave him a hug and she said, I was standing at the window and I saw the whole thing. But because I love you, I forgave you. And I wondered how long you would let Sally make a slave of you. Isn't this what our guilt and shame from sin does to us? It makes a slave of us. It brings us into bondage. But I want you to know that God hasn't changed. Forgiveness is near to the heart of God. Do you know the forgiveness and the freedom from guilt that comes from being yoked together from knowing Christ? I wonder how long, brothers and sisters, will you let sin and the guilt of iniquity make you a slave, keep you in bondage, keep you from walking in joy that comes from Walking with Christ. The psalmist encourages us to cry out to God. To remember that God is faithful to forgive. And then thirdly, this morning, he exhorts us that we must learn to wait on God with confident expectation. We see this in verses 5 and 6. The present position of the psalmist We see from verse 1 that he's in the depths. And in verse 2, he's crying out to the Lord. And in verses 3 and 4, he's affirming and reminding himself that God is merciful and he's faithful. And now in verse 5, we see him waiting. Look at what he says in verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I wait. You know, waiting is an exercise of patience, isn't it? In our fast-paced society, waiting is something that we're not very good at. In fact, if we were truthful, we're actually pretty bad. We're just poor at it. You know, and this affects every generation differently. But in our culture, we've been conditioned to obtain, obtain things now without waiting patiently, without working for it so that we get it in the long run. And this carries over into our spiritual lives. But spiritual growth is not obtained so quickly and so rashly. You see, waiting on the Lord is something that must be cultivated. It's a discipline that must be cultivated in our lives. And it's in the process of waiting on the Lord that we learn much about our inability and God's great ability we learn to lean on His sovereign power. And we're able to see God work in ways in our lives that we can never accomplish in our own strength. You see, God wants to teach us in the midst of the journey. And these teachable moments often come through affliction, through trials, through troubles. And it's in waiting on the Lord that we learn there are no shortcuts to growing in godliness. So what is waiting? What does Scripture tell us waiting on the Lord looks like? I think Psalm 62.5 encourages us that waiting is, is sitting in silence before the Lord. As Dr. David read earlier, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. It's standing on the promises of His word with Hope, as verse five says, I I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. It's knowing that God will act and watching for him to do so. Psalm 4610 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then it's being before God in expectation and, and in patience. Psalm 41, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. See, verse 6 conveys this trust and, and expectation. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. Does the watchman know the morning is coming? Yes. This is the portrait of. Of the Godly One watching and waiting for the Lord. This is a call to sustain meditation and prayer in the life of God's people. We are to learn how to wait before God with expectancy. And the psalmist is doing more than just claiming the theological truth of forgiveness in the psalm. He is waiting to experience, listen, he's waiting to experience the reality of his guilt removed, his sin forgiven. He goes before God with the action of dependence. He doesn't just assume that because Christ died, He's forgiven me of all my sin. He feels the weight of his sin. He brings it before the Lord, and he waits there for God to remove that guilt. You see, the action of waiting is an action that we're not very comfortable with. He waits on God for the glorious dawning of renewed mercies. And so we we learn about God through the revelation of his word. But here's the thing. We come to know God as we wait upon him with expectancy and trust. As we meditate on his word and we engage with God in silence, we learn to hope with expectancy that God hears our voice and he gives ear to our prayers. G. Campbell Morgan said this about waiting on God. Waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not abandonment of effort. Waiting for God... First means activity under command. Second, readiness for any new command that may come. This means we're servants yielded, waiting, ready for him to speak. And then thirdly, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. That is, depend upon him. Trust in the Lord. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you exercising the discipline of waiting on the Lord Are you experiencing His mercy that's new at the dawning of of each day? The fourth exhortation that we see in this text this morning in verses 7 and 8 is that we we can experience freedom from bondage. In verses 7 and 8, the individual lament up to this point gives way to a corporate or a communal appeal of trusting in God's promise and His love and trusting in his abundant redemption. Look at verse seven. "O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. This steadfast love that he speaks of here in the psalm, it points us to the person and the work of Christ. You see, Christ is the embodiment of verses seven and eight for the believer. The Hebrew term here for love is the word chesed. And it's the term for God's faithfulness and covenanting together with his people. That he will not forsake his people. And this points us to Christ. Because Jesus has enacted a new covenant with his blood. And he's fulfilled the old covenant of God with his people. And so in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 13, it says, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Then he says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. You see, this love that Christ speaks of here is the love of a Savior who has died to redeem us from sin and to pardon us from our iniquities. And in doing so, Jesus has made God's abundant redemption known. And this is what Jesus spoke of at the Last Supper when he told his disciples in Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here is plentiful and abundant redemption in the person and in the work of Christ. He says there, For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Hear the promise of verses 7 and 8. We can experience freedom from bondage. The bondage of guilt, the bondage of sin. Christ has died that we might be free from this bondage, from this deep anguish. Because all who profess faith in Christ can know or know the redemption that comes from Christ, can know that Christ himself has purchased our sin and he has removed our guilt and he's released us from the bondage of sin. And when we're yoked together with Christ, we find redemption for our souls. So the psalmist knows that as he waits for the Lord, He'll experience God's forgiveness and he'll experience God's covenant love and he'll experience God's redemptive power. Let me ask you this morning, are you experiencing freedom from bondage? Are you winning the fight, the battle against sin? Are you turning to God, calling out to him for deliverance in the midst of temptation? Are you waiting on the Lord with confident expectation? Going before him, meditating on his word, knowing that God hears and that he is ready and willing to answer, that he's ready and willing to come to the aid of his children. Do you know that God is faithful to forgive you? Listen, whatever guilt or bondage you might be struggling with or carrying around, Christ has died. And he has redeemed you. He has removed this sin, this guilt. He has pardoned you. So let it go. Cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ. Be forgiven. And church, if that's not you this morning, believer... Share that with someone who it is, it is them. It's their, it's their circumstance. Take the word of the gospel and let it bring hope into the lives that are weak, that are struggling, that are sick with sin. Are you calling out to God for deliverance from guilt, from iniquity? The deliverance that we're speaking about this morning can only come through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no true deliverance. Outside of Christ. Turn to him. Give it to him. Lay that before him. And when it comes back, lay it before him again. And again and again. Remember that God is faithful to forgive. I want to invite you this morning to take time. As, as the song is played in a minute, if, if you can't sing, just meditate upon the truth of Scripture before the Lord. If God has put someone in your mind, pray for them. Call their name out before the Lord. Pray about a way that you can take the truth of God's Word and, and share it with them. And finally, this morning, if if you need deliverance and you've never called upon Christ as savior and trusted in him, scripture says that if we place our faith in him, we repent of our sin, confess our sin before him and place our faith and trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the grave and ascended to the father, that we can have salvation If you've never done that before this morning, you take time right where you're at to confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is Savior. He's God. He's supreme over all. And then you share that with someone. You come share that with me this morning. I'll be down front, and I would love to hear that if that's what Christ is doing in your life, I would love to hear you come and share that with me. Maybe this morning you just want to come and kneel at the steps and pray for yourself or pray for someone else. Feel free to do that. As I pray, let us bow together and you respond as the Lord leads. Pray with me. Father. Humbly, we come before you. Confessing God as a psalm as a psalmist does, we 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 confess that we are not worthy. And because of that, we we need your mercy. We don't deserve your goodness. We don't deserve to be in your presence. But you you mercifully don't give us what we deserve. You you give us your grace and, and you allow us to come into your presence. Thank you, Jesus, for being our high priest. Whoever intercedes for us before God's throne. And now, Lord, I pray for strength for your people. I pray for wisdom for us as we seek to faithfully live out and live under the truth and the hope of your word. So we cry out to you this morning. We trust in you. We cast our cares upon you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?